So we've been in this series, Spiritual Warfare, for seven weeks now, right? It doesn't seem like seven weeks, but we have. And so if you've got your Bible, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is where we're going to start. We've, we've read this passage every single week since we started this series. But we, uh, and I would like to say that we're going to bring this thing to a head here pretty soon, but we've still got a few weeks left of what we want to get through on this. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1, says, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that you, when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walk according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. As you can see, I'll have the verses up on the screen just in case you don't have a Bible with you today, but it is always good to try to follow along. I do have a bad habit of talking rather fast, but I will try to go slow because I have a lot of for you guys today. But what we did when we started this is to build a foundation of spiritual warfare. I told you that every believer needs to be able to answer four fundamental questions. And not a matter of opinion, but from the Word of God. And the first one is, who is God? Not who is do we think God is, but who is He according to the Word? What does He say that He is? Who He is? What does He do? All of those things are like that. So we focused on that, and then it came down to who am I in relationship to Him? It's crucial to have an understanding of who He says I am and my relationship with Him. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But thanks to the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can be boldly, or enter boldly into His presence and, and have a right to be there. The, last, the next one from there is, how do I worship Him? It's one thing to do worship. It's another thing to live worship. On Sunday morning, we do worship. We get together, we sing songs, we worship God, right? But to live worship goes a step beyond that. In fact, that is the all-encompassing part that Jesus said, that we are to be a living sacrifice unto Him. That means that while I live, every part of my life belongs to Him in worship and adoration of who He is. We lay down our life and pick up His cross. That's what we do. And so we follow God and let Him take everything. And then the last one is, who is my enemy? understanding who that is. And according to the passage we just read, we understand that our enemy can't be flesh and blood because we don't wage war like everybody else. The way we wage war has to do with the bringing down of strongholds. They're not weapons of warfare that are carnal, but they're mighty in God. These are spiritual things. The problem that we have is that we're not spiritually minded. We are earthly minded, fleshly minded, however you want to say it. We're carnally minded because what do we do? When something comes against us, our reaction is not, let's go to the Word and see what we need to do. Our reaction is, let's call somebody and get some help. Let's call somebody to pray for us, even though we have the ability to do that ourselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with seeking help and advice and guidance and also seeking prayer from other people. We're called to do that, but we don't go to God. We're not spiritually minded. We are carnally minded. And so in this aspect, we began to look at who is our enemy. And, and so the first thing that we did is we looked at what is his name? And we began to go through scripture. And, and, and honestly, most of us growing up have the idea that Satan's name is Lucifer. 
right? But the problem is, is that's not what the Bible really says. Now, that is what we call them, and we can call them that. There's nothing wrong with that. But Lucifer is a translation that just means morning star or day star. It's not a proper name. It's a description. And all throughout the Bible, you see descriptions of him, but you don't see a specific proper name. Now, that may be splitting hairs to some, and it kind of is in one sense. But in the other sense, is that we've got to know the word. We've got to know what it says. The second part was like, what does he look like? Now, a lot of us, and I showed you some pictures last week, of think of some dude with red horns and a goatee and carries around a pitchfork and runs around in red underpants, right? That's what we think of, we say, in the long tail, you know what I'm talking about, right? I grew up believing that. That's, that's all I knew. And so I, that, uh, we looked at that. But then again, what does the Bible say? We saw in Ezekiel 28, he said he was an anointed cherub. And so we begin to look at what does a cherub look like? And they're weird looking creatures. There's no doubt about that. And it gives some specifics there. But today, we are going to talk about when did Satan fall? And, and I think this is important, and I'm going to give you my theory on it. And I'll tell you that it is my theory. But I think my theory is supported through Scripture. Now, there are lots of theories, tons of them. Everybody's got one. In fact, it seems like they just come up with them because they want to write a book at times because some of them are so outlandish. You're like, where on earth did you pull this from? But our idea of Satan... Hell, all of that kind of stuff doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from movies. It comes from books. And most of them started with the book Dante's Inferno that was written however long ago. Our images and the things we think of come from that. But we should look at the Bible. And so one of the things that we're going to look at today is something called the gap theory. Now, this is not my theory. In fact, I, I believe that this is an incorrect theory. But the gap theory, is, in short, says that there is a gap of time between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Okay, so God said he created the earth in six literal days and that on the seventh day he rested. So basically the whole process took a week. There are some that conjecturize saying that there is this gap of time, maybe millions of years. And there is all sorts of stuff that go in this. There are all sorts of proponents for it. You can't just say the gap theory because there's dozens of different ones of how they work. But the most popular one is that there was a race of being that lived then. This is when the dinosaurs lived and then they were destroyed and all of this kind of stuff. And, and so we have... That, and then we have what we would say, the Bible. Okay? So the Bible says something different than the gap theory. And I'm going to show you today of why this thing gets off a little bit. Um, when we look at it, they, they say that Lucifer was on earth. Here's the gist of it. Lucifer was on earth. God judged Lucifer because he fell. We know he fell. And that chaos came to the world. And so the earth was wiped out with a flood. They call it Lucifer's flood. Right? That's where it comes from. But so here... That's the gist of it to give you a quick understanding of it. All right, is everybody with me? I didn't lose anybody in that. I talk kind of fast and I'm jumping all over the place. But basically, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Pause for however long it happens to be. Verse 2, God starts recreating everything. That's the gist of it, if you understand that. So where did the theory come from? Before we get into the scriptural aspect of it, we need to understand the background and the history of it. It was actually started by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. And I've got a picture of him. He was a Scottish theologian. He was the first moderator of the Free Church of Scotland. And he is credited as being the first proponent of the gap theory. His proposal on this was first recorded in 1814 in one of his lectures at Edinburgh University. Now, prior to this, very few theologians considered Genesis 1 as describing anything other than a literal 24-hour day 
event. Scientists would agree with this. You look back and study science back in the 1700s and all these different guys, they believed in a young earth. They believed that God, God did it in 24-hour days. Most of science wasn't at the time what it is today, which is like, how do we remove God from the equation? Back then, it was, how did God do it? We just want to know. We have a, a quest for knowledge, so to speak. So Chalmers' teaching, it to a great extent, is what ha- was reflecting of what was going on in the late 1700s and the early 1800s of what was happening. And this all became, started happening because of a guy named James Hutton. And he was a scientist in 1795. He came out with this scientific doctrine of uniformitarianism. That's a big word. Y'all try to say it. He wrote a book called The Theory of Earth. And the gist of this theory was that the present is the key to the past. Perhaps you've heard that before. In other words, that whatever is happening today is what was happening thousands of years ago or millions of years ago. In other words, nothing was slowing down. It was all the same. The logic in this is questionable, but this is where they began to do it. Because what do we know about science? What does it tell us? The second law of thermodynamics. Everything is going from order to chaos. It's not the same. We see all sorts of stuff. So this guy writes this, comes up with this theory, and Charles Lyell took it to a whole nother level. He was what was known as the high priest of uniformitarianism. I can't even say the word. And he was, he's the father of modern geology. And a lot of our geologic things, the geologic column and all of that kind of stuff, comes from this guy's work. Now, I'm giving you a lot of background in science. Just bear with me. Don't write this stuff down. There will be no test. It's going to be okay. I promise. But I'm just trying to give you an understanding of where all of this came from. But here's what he took this and he believed this wholeheartedly. And so he began to look at all the layers that we see of sediments throughout the earth. And he didn't want us to come to the fact that God had judged the world by a flood, right? He's like, this, I don't believe this. This can't be possible. So we see these layers. So in other words, they had to be slowly deposited over millions of years. Now, if you've ever been a part of a flood, you know it wreaks havoc on an area. Water is very damaging. It does things very quickly. And if there was a global flood, such as Noah's flood, it is going to do a lot of damage. So because of all this that was going on, the Bible and Christians would take the Bible and say, okay, here's what science is saying. How can we fit these two things together? Because now for the first time, probably not the first time, but there's major scrutiny going on between them. And that is where Chalmers came up with this, being the first to attempt to interpret the Bible through science. That was basically what he was doing. He said, science is saying this, therefore we've got to read the Bible through the lenses of what man is telling us. That's backwards. In other words, we should see everything through what Scripture tells us. Because science has been wrong dozens and dozens of times. Hundreds of times. They come up with some theory. Jim and I were talking. They just said they found a new planet. And they said this planet sustains life. And they said it's 150 billion years old, yet they haven't been to this planet. So how they come up with this stuff is beyond me. But they, I think they just really pulled some arbitrary number out of a hat and say, this is what we're going with. Now, the last time they did that, I believe, was back in the late 90s. They said, we found a planet, and there's a 100% chance that this planet has life on it. It meets all the criteria, which is over 200 different criteria for a planet to sustain life. And they said, I guarantee it, it has life on it. They've seen it through a telescope. So they sent a probe up there, and when the probe got up there, they realized it wasn't even a planet, it was a ball of gas. There was no planet. Science was wrong. Okay. Now, I'll say this, and I will preface this here. That doesn't mean there's not the possibility of existence on other planets. Okay. The Bible doesn't speak of it. 
it's silent in it. I wouldn't make the, jump to the conclusion that there is, but I also wouldn't 100% eliminate it. God's a big God. He can have multiple universes going on out there. Don't go outside and start looking for little green men coming to this earth, okay? But I'm just saying, it's not beyond possibility. I just got this asked that question two weeks ago, so I'll throw it out there. Anyway, Chalmers doing what he's doing, interpreting the Bible through the lens of science comes, comes up with this theory, but it didn't really catch hold and take popularity until Schofield got a hold of it. In 1909, he published the Schofield Study Bible, and this Bible was one of the most used of its day, and it created widespread acceptance of this gap theory. So here it is. They are looking through the Bible through the lens of science. In other words, okay, Mr. Man, man's flawed. God's Word is perfect according to God. He's the one who said it, not me. But what, what do you say about that? Why, if, if you're saying this, then, then maybe my Bible's wrong or maybe my understanding of it's wrong, right? We've seen all that. I mean, how many of you guys remember back in the 90s you were forbidden to eat eggs? They were high cholesterol. You can't have them. They're bad for you. They're going to kill you. They'll kill you tomorrow. That's what eggs do. Now we're encouraged to eat eggs because they're healthy. And the truth is, is it has all to do with how much money the egg people are throwing at lobbyists and all of this stuff. That's what it comes down to. They keep feeding us full of stuff. So anyway, so that's the gap theory in a, in a nutshell of where it came from and what it says. But the question I have for you is, is it biblical? Okay. There are four main passages of Scripture that gap theorists will use to basically set this thing up. Genesis 1.28, Isaiah 45.18, which we read this morning, Jeremiah 4.23 and 24, and 2 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6. We're going to look at all of those. I can sense the excitement from you guys. I, you're like, oh, I'm so glad I came today. I promise it gets better. So let's go through these real quickly. Genesis 1.28. And it says, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. Key word there, replenish, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, by the way, I'm going to read out of the King James Version for all of these, and there's an important reason why, and I'll tell you what. But here we see the word replenish, okay? We all know what replenish means, right? You can't replenish something that was never plenished, in the first place. In other words, it means to refill, right? So this is where they come back to, they say that prior to verse 2, earth was full and then was destroyed, and that is why God told them to replenish it. In other words, refill it. But the problem is, is that what it really says? Now we see it and we understand that. But we got to remember the King James Bible was translated in 1611. And you also have to remember that over, over time, words change. They change meanings, right? Do you guys remember back in the 40s and 50s? Where, well, maybe you don't remember back then, but it, just in case you do, that the word gay meant happy. It doesn't have the same meaning anymore. But in 1611, the word replenish meant to fill, as in the first time, to make full, fill, stock with. I have an app on my iPad that is a 1680 dictionary or something like that, that I go back and I, it has nothing to do with this. I got it because I like to see how things change. I'm a nerd, y'all. i just throwing that out there, okay? I look at weird stuff. I want to understand why stuff ticks, okay? I was the kid that took apart the VCR. Um, some of the young folks probably don't know what a VCR is, but I took it apart to see what made it work and then couldn't put it back together and we got to buy a new VCR. So anyway, back then when this was translated, it meant to fill, as in the first time. The Hebrew word here for replenish is male. It looks like the word male, M-A-L-E, male, which means to fill or be full, not to 
fill again. There's a difference. Now, I want to show you this, and I've got some clips out of some old dictionaries, okay? If you look at this thing, and it's going to be kind of hard to read, but I'm going to read it for you. Um, these come literally from a dictionary. This, the first one is the American Dictionary of the English Language. It was written by Noah Webster in 1828. You look at the first definition there. It says, to fill, to stock with numbers or abundance. The second one is to finish, to complete. Okay. Look down at the next one, the American Dictionary of the English Language, again, written by Noah Webster in 1891, nearly 70 years later. It says, again, number one, to fill, to stock with numbers or abundance. Okay? And it gives the example, the magazines are replenished with, uh, with corn. That's weird. The springs are replenished with water. I don't even know what that means. Corn people, you have to explain what on earth a magazine and corn has to do with each other. But anyway, but here it is. Now look at the next one, 1892. All three written by the same guy, Webster's Common School. Replenish, it's right underneath the word replace, the second one another. To fill up again, to fill completely. It changed, it flip-flopped in the matter of one year. In 1891, it meant to fill as in fill the first time. And the way we understand it today changed in 1892. You see three different dictionaries showing the definition, and it shows you when it changed. Our understanding of it changed. When we say replenish, that means it was once full. It needs to be restocked. Once in a while, I look at my wife and I say, you need to replenish the Diet Coke and the rest of the fridge while you're at it. That'd be great. I tend to empty it often. But, so we look at Genesis 1, and we say, okay, wait a minute, that's not what it means. It's our understanding it. Let's look at the next one, Isaiah 45. We read this this morning in Bible study. Isaiah 45 and verse 18. I'll give you a second to flip there for those of you that are doing it, you studious folk. Isaiah 45 and 18 says, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Now, in the new Schofield Reference Bible, which is the newer one and the old one, this is where they have now placed the footnote referring to the gap theory. They've taken it out of Genesis 1-2. This is where they're saying it. Why? Because of the part that says, He created it not in vain. And we talked a little bit about that this morning. Not in vain. So, to us, what we're saying is that, first of all, God doesn't create anything in vain. He always has a purpose. And so, and He wouldn't create it in this chaotic state. He would create it in perfection, right? The Hebrew word here is tohu, translated vain, and it's without form. Essentially, is what it comes down, vain and without form. Genesis 1-2 is where it, where it comes from. So the conclusion here is that God did not create the earth without form, but he created uh, and it became without form is what, what we look at. They're basically saying that this is the part that was mistranslated, and it should say became without form instead of was without form. That's what they're trying to say here. The problem here is the Hebrew word tohu means not formed, just not formed. It's very simple. It does not mean formlessness resulting from a judgment. It means not formed. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the translator could have used the word chaos to convey the idea of judgment, but they chose not to. The word was available, but they took the one that was talking about this, this formlessness that was created. Why? Because this isn't talking about a judgment. God created all things necessary for things to be made from. 
it was formless. So this is how it works. When you study the Hebrew, and I am not a Hebrew expert, I definitely yield to those who are, okay? And there are a lot of them. One of the guys I follow extensively is Michael Brown. He has his doctorate in Semitic languages, and he literally reads from a Hebrew Bible and then tells the rest of us what it says because we can't understand anything he says. It sounds like he's like choking on something as he says it. But, but anyway, is that the gist of it is, to put it lightly, that God created everything and then from there made everything out of this creation all the things necessary to put this earth together, this whole universe, this world, was created at that moment, and there began putting the pieces in place. It would be the same illustration as that if you were going to build a house, and the lumber yard comes and drops that whole big stack of stuff off. Everything you need is there to build a house, but you don't have a formed house. Everything you need is there, but it's formless. You see what I'm saying? That's how this puts together. So that's Isaiah 45. Another one, Jeremiah 4, 23 and 24. It says, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was what? Without form and void. And the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. Now, this is one that they love, because you talk about this, it's like, okay, without form and void. We've heard that before, right? Genesis 1, we look at that. They believe that this whole prophecy is a glimpse into the past where God judged the earth, because of that phrase. Basically, there must be a connection. The problem here is the word earth isn't referring to earth. How do we know that? We read things in context. It's referring to the land of Judah. Look at Jeremiah, same chapter 4, but jump down to verse 3. For thus saith the Lord to the men of what? Judah and Jerusalem. Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of where? Judah. And inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire, and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Declare ye in where? Judah, and publish in Jerusalem, and say, Blow ye the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together, and say, Assemble yourselves, and let us go into the defensed cities. When we read it in context, we see it is a prophecy of a future event. The only reason we're connecting the two is because of that phraseology that's there. Again, we can simply understand, but we've got to keep everything. We allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Not my opinion of Scripture. It's what does the Bible say. In context, it's talking about the coming destruction of Judah by the Babylonian armies. That's what it's getting to. The last one, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5. We finally get something in the New Testament. For this they willingly are ignorant of that, of that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So there are two parts here that there's, they're looking at. First is they don't believe that this is referring to Noah's flood, but to Lucifer's flood, and that brought on the formless water-covered earth that is in Genesis 1-2. Okay, how many of you guys, show of hands, have ever heard of Lucifer's flood? First time? Right? Most of us, yeah, first time? Right, right. That's because it's not in the Bible. Now, where do we get this? And it's like, where does this come from? Again, what do we do when we're trying to prove our theory? You guys remember a long, long time ago, I taught you two really big words that you don't need to remember. Exegesis, eisegesis. What is exegesis? I go to the scripture and allow me, 
or allow it to tell me what is saying. What is eisegesis? I have an idea that I want to keep, so I go to Scripture to just support the idea that I have. And we get in trouble when we do that because we don't allow, we don't put all things together to allow them to talk. The second thing here is that if Peter wanted to discuss a different flood, he probably would have been very detailed about it as there was only one that everyone knows about. I would say that if I talked about, since we're talking about the Bible and I say the flood, most of us automatically go to Noah's flood. Why? That is the flood that's talked about. Okay? So, the only flood Peter had previously mentioned was Noah's in 1 Peter 3.20 and 2 Peter 2.5. Let's look at those real quick. Now remember, these are both written by the same guy, Peter. Okay? So, I would say that if he was going to differentiate from that, he would probably do so very uh, vividly. Verse 20 and 1 Peter 3 which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing therein, or wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Here he's specifically talking about Noah's flood, right? 2 Peter 2.5, same letter, previous chapter. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now you got to remember, chapter and verses were added very much later. He didn't write this. And it's like in 2 Peter 2 5, he didn't write all those numbers out. We added those as points of reference, uh, is all we do. Contextually, contextually, excuse me, we would have to do all sorts of flip flops through this to think anything other than Noah's flood. He just wrote it in the previous chapter. We, there's no reason. He gives us no imagery here to say that he's talking about something else. Basically, the argument is that Noah and his family didn't die and the whole world didn't perish. Why do they say that? Because they look at it as that it can't be Noah's flood because somebody survived. So the whole world didn't perish. Again, we got to look at things and allow Scripture to tell us what it's talking about. Genesis 7 and 23. And every living substance was destroyed, which is upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. Every living thing was destroyed, but God separated Noah specifically in this passage from the rest of the items that are described. So, to give you a quick rundown, because this isn't the whole point of everything, but I wanted to talk about this because whether you've heard of the gap theory before or not, you definitely will as you begin to study things out, because there's all sorts of people that believe it. Now, that doesn't mean that we're 100% right, but I think the Bible's pretty clear in what it's talking about. And so they sit here and they say, basically, that God created the angels. We know they created Lucifer, created everything. And that there was this world that existed, this pre-Adamic race, which just means prior to Adam. And because of Lucifer's fall, that he judged the world through Lucifer's flood, is what they say, and all these creatures die. They, that's why they come up with the idea, they say dinosaurs were back then, that's why they are extinct now. They say that why we see these uh, Cro-Magnum man and these different things that back there, these large skulled creatures, even though science has found a, a, an explanation for that that actually lines up with the Bible, that that's where these were, that these, they were these creatures. So in other words, that he created this world, destroyed it, started recreating it in verse 2. Does everybody kind of understand that? Let me give you one more point, and I didn't put this in my notes, but I thought about it as I was walking in here in Revelation 21 of why this doesn't work. Revelation 21. So in other words, God created the world according to gap theory, created the world, destroyed it, recreated the world, which is the one that we live in, and sin has brought us to the point that we are here. 
But Revelation 21 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the which heaven? First heaven and first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. We read that this morning. First heaven. Now if the idea of the gap theory that there was a world that was destroyed, then we would be in the second earth, the second heaven, which means that now we would be on to the third earth, third heaven. But that's not what it says. It says first was gone, we're on to the second. So do you see there's a lot of holes in that theory. We've got to allow Scripture to be our guide, right? No question about it. We just got to succumb to what the Bible says and allow it to tell us things, okay? And, and, and I, I, again, I encourage you as I do every week, don't take my word for anything. It's just some of this is my opinion. Go home and study it out yourself. Go home and get into your Bible, open it up, and see exactly what it says. So, here is the point of today. Genesis 3, turn over there real quick. When did Satan fall? Gap there say that it is before, the fall, or before man was created and before all of that stuff. In fact, most people would say somewhere in that. Some do propose that it was sometime after man, that we just don't really know that the Bible's not clear. So I'm going to give you a quick answer. Um, and then I'm going to show you the evidence. So Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read a bunch of this. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, But we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. I'm back in New King James right now, just in case you're trying to follow along. I, I prefer New King James most of the time. Verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Well, and you think God didn't already know what had happened? Of course he did. Um, God's always good at asking questions that he already knows the answers to, which is like those teachers you didn't used to like in school. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. The man haven't stopped blaming their wives yet. We still do it. So, verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So now she's blaming him. So the Lord God said to the serpent, and here is where we're going, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you should go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your lives. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will multi greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then Adam said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake." In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your lives, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, that you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till, the return, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Okay, 
What do we see here? We see the fall of man, and that is the passage that what we look at when we read this passage. This is where mankind fell. Now, what do we know that happened through other verses? Why, why is there in this world? It's because of sin. Where do we see the first sin? We see it right here. Here's what I'm going to say to you, and I'm going to give, again, I'm going to give you this answer, what I believe. This isn't a popular theory that's out there. I didn't come up with it, but I think it is the most biblically accurate verse to verse, is the fact that right here is where we see the fall of Satan. Now, when we see the serpent, many have assumed that it was a literal snake is basically the gist of it. And it had little legs and something like that, and God removed the legs and all of that. But... There's some problems with that. They believe that Satan possessed this snake, that it was just an innocent animal running around. Satan jumps into the body of it and possesses it. And they also believe that at one point the animals talked. There's some problems here, though. There, first of all, there's no evidence in the Bible anywhere that animals spoke. The only time you see it is Balaam's donkey, and that was most definitely a supernatural event, no question. Okay. The other thing is that what do we see as one of the descriptions of Satan all throughout Scripture. We see him as a serpent, right? So the idea here is that when we look at the judgment itself, and we're going to look at this here in just a sec, you'll notice that there's no break between the judging of that serpent and the judging of Satan. If they were two separate things. Verse 14 says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you should go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity... And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now we know what that seed is talking about. It is, it is establishing a seed war. The problem here is that if this is a literal serpent, a literal snake that they are referring to, why is there no break? Because it says, and I will put. In other words, the first part of this would have to be to the animal. The second part would have to be Satan. But he's not, he never distinguishes between the two. We know that there's a seed war going on. We see it in Genesis 6 where it really starts to take off. And that, what do we see? The bruising of the heel and all of that stuff. We see that um, phraseology all the way throughout Scripture. You see it everywhere. We know that he is referring to Jesus. Another problem with this theory, that this thing was a literal animal, is that who had dominion on the earth? Man had dominion on the earth, given by God. Satan would have no legal right to possess anything because the earth belonged to man. God gave it to him, Genesis 1 and 27. It says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed him and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Who did God give dominion to? Adam and Eve. Satan had no legal right to anything. He had not just the earth, but he had every living thing. A literal serpent would be a living thing. This belonged to man. God gave it to man. Satan could not come in and possess this thing. Now we see it later that he certainly can. He does it with, with Judah, as a matter of fact. Satan possesses him when they give Christ over. We see it in other places that, you know, with, with possessions and things like that. Last week we looked at what Satan looks like, and then we know that he was the anointed cherub. And we know that a cherub is a type of angel, right? So what we don't know for sure is when the angels were created, but we do see it gives, the Bible gives us a hint in Job 38. Job 38 and verse 4. For those of you that are flipping, I'll give you a second. I'm going to try to slow down because I don't want to lose anybody 
in this, and I will stop. Job 38, starting in verse 4. It says, where were you? This is God talking to Job, basically laying a smack down on Job, getting rid of his whiny little attitude. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The sons of God is the Hebrew word benai Elohim. Every time that is used, it refers to angels. So all we know is that the angels were there when the cornerstone was laid. Now, when you lay a cornerstone in a building, of our understanding, it's the first thing you lay. It's got to be just right, good square, because everything gets built upon that. And so while we don't know exactly when they were created, we do know that it's prior to God laying the foundations of the earth, whatever that looks like, whether that was just the land, whether that was the actual whole process, we don't really know. So Satan would have been created at that point. Why? Because he was an angel. And then let's look at Ezekiel 28. And we're almost done, I promise. Ezekiel 28, and we're going to start in verse 11. Now there are two passages that really talk about the fall of Satan and what caused it and what not Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And the way to remember those is 14 times 2 is 28. And Isaiah comes before Ezekiel. So it just, I don't know, makes it easy to remember, at least for me. Maybe it doesn't. Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 11, says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, diamond, barrel, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your temples and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I establish you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until when iniquity was found in you. So first question for you, was Satan in Eden? Yes, it just tells us. So is it beyond reason that if Satan was in Eden, that Adam and Eve probably would have seen him there? Because you've got to remember, things were different. They saw God. They were in perfect fellowship and communion with God. They saw into a spiritual realm that perhaps that we don't see today. But it is not beyond possibility that we see him. Now, what do we know? Does Satan have the ability to speak? Of course he does. We see it when he tempts Jesus, specifically there. He takes him around. We also know that at some point in this whole thing is Satan gained dominion of the earth. Now we hypothesize that it happened right there at the fall that man somehow turned it over to there. We don't know for sure, but that'd be about the only place that makes any sense because when he tempts Jesus that if you'll worship me, I'll, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world, that's not a temptation if he doesn't own it. Right? If I took the keys to stand truck and I came up and said, I'll sell you this truck for 100 bucks. you're not tempted to buy it because you know I don't own that truck. And if you don't, I'll take 100 bucks for it, just so you know. But here's the thing. So it's not beyond reason, and we can at least say that it's possible that, that he was there. But what do you know when you differentiate, you look all the way through this, it's talking about how he was until iniquity was found in him. Right? He was the seal of perfection. He was full of wisdom and perfect beauty. He was in Eden. 
talks about all of the stones, talks about the timbrels and pipes that were created, uh, prepared from the day he was created, which means, again, he was created. He was the anointed cherub, and that anointed cherub means he was some angel with some authority. When you anointed, you're set apart. Um, he was on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fire stone. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Now, prior to this, at least in my reading of it, when I look at this, I'm saying all of these things happened prior to him falling. It was when iniquity was found in him. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at one more scripture, I think. Let me look. I don't want to lie. Yep, one more. Promise. We're almost done. That I believe will put all of this to bed of when Satan fell and also put the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, for the gap theory. You've got to remember that says that Satan fell between Genesis 1 and 1-2. So Genesis, turn over to Genesis chapter 2. I want you to read this for yourself. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to read verse 7 and 8. It's up on the screen. Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And I want to stop there for a second. Genesis 1 gives the creation account. Genesis 2 gives a quick recap and then begins to go into the more specifics of things happening after that. But look at verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, most of us in our lives at some point had assumed that the whole world was kind of the Garden of Eden and that man was kind of created in the Garden of Eden. But that's not what this says. It says God planted a garden eastward in Eden and there he put the man. Now we know that if God planted the garden, it was after the creation account. It had to either be on day six of creation where he created man and the land animals and everything else, which would include dinosaurs, or it had to be on day eight or after. Day seven, he rested, so we know it wasn't day seven. So it had to be day eight or after. Could have been day six, we don't know for sure. We also know that Satan was in the garden, right? So if, if Ezekiel 28 is telling us all of these things were going on prior to your fall, and we know that God created the garden, planted the garden on day six or after, there's no way that Satan fell before Genesis chapter 3. See, here's what I think is going on. We see that God placed cherubim after the fall outside of the garden to keep, we always say to keep Adam out, but you got to remember what these cherubim look like. They're big, giant, freaky creatures with four wings and four faces and all of this stuff. And the I am ending on that is the plural form of cherub, and it always means three or more. It's not just possibly two, and a flaming sword. You don't need all of that to keep Adam out. You need that to keep Satan out. Okay? So we see that. We see um, that Satan, you know, does his thing, he falls. So we, we know that he wasn't in the garden after the fall. We see phraseology used as a, a, a sort of symbol of, of Satan as the serpent, all through in, in, in later great dragon it talks about in Revelation 12 and all of this stuff. But is it possible that Satan fell prior to this? I don't think so. You see, God said that everything he made day by day was good or very good. Each part of that goes on. If sin was already taking place in the world, it wouldn't be good. Because what does sin bring? Sin brings death. It brought death into this world. With the gap theory, death would have been into the world prior to the creation event. That means that God created and called everything very good on a pile of a bunch of fossils and bones and whatnot. 
that doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. Because God said it was good. Satan was created good. He was created perfect and ultimately fell because of pride. And we're going to get into the fall of Satan and why he fell next week a little bit more. But we've got to understand something. We've got to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. This is what we do. Now, most of us don't take the time to go through all of this, and I realize this a lot, and I hope I didn't overwhelm you all today. But I want you to think about why this is significant. Is that, one, we've got to know our Bible. And if we have things that we believe that are contradictory to the Bible, it doesn't hold water. Because if death was in the world prior to sin, then that means sin didn't bring the death and sickness that we say that the atonement came and destroyed. Therefore, there was really no reason for Christ to die because all of this was in the world prior to sin. That means God did not create a good world. That is the message that we preach, the message that we portray, the message that we honestly should live is that when we go to people and we're saying that Jesus died for your sins, if you think anything other than that, then you're wrong. Because He can't just die for some sin. He had to die for all sin. If God is bigger than all of this stuff, then we are simply not walking the authority that we have been given by Him. The promises that He made, Psalm 103, the rights that we have, the benefits that God has given us. We have got to be people that examine the Scriptures constantly. And, and I've told you guys this before, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll end with this, but about five or six years ago, the Lord really started dealing with me personally, is that I had a whole lot of beliefs, but no foundation. I had no foundation upon which I believed them. I just believed them. You know, I'd been taught them my entire life. I had no reason to doubt them. And so because of that, I was like, okay, fine. So I'm going to start examining Scripture. And then one by one, they began to fall. And it's like, you got to be kidding me. So after I began to realize that most of what I've been taught and believed my entire life was in error of some form, doesn't mean it was completely wrong, but in error of some form, that it's like, you know what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw everything out, and I'm going to start over. I'm going to, God, what are you telling me? What are you teaching me here? The key to the gospel which is what we're supposed to be portraying every single day. When Jesus said, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples, I want you to preach to every creature, everything with breath in its lungs, you need to be sharing the good news of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us exactly what the good news is, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried in the ground, and God raised him up three days later, are hinged on the belief that Genesis 1 is true. That if Genesis 1-1, that in the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth, if that's true, then everything that comes after that is at least possible. But if we are questioning the beginning, and we don't take the simplicity of God, we make the Bible complicated. Thanks to theologians, we're all confused. God didn't make it complicated. We make things complicated. I probably made complicated. Is anybody's brain cramp right now? And like, like, I'm going to go home and stretch because it hurts a little right now? Yeah, sorry about that. I just tried to give you a lot of information, but I want to make sure you understand. But if we can't accept Genesis 1-1, simply how God said it, then why can we simply accept that all we have to do is to be saved is to accept the free gift of Jesus Christ. That we are saved by grace in Christ it's through faith. That's it. Yeah. But what does religion tell us? We have to do. We have to do this. We've got to do this. We've got to get our lives right. And then we can come to God. And the problem is, is that we can't possibly get our life right without God. But if we can't accept Genesis 1, then we can't accept the good news of the gospel because it's too simple. That's right. So here's what I want to do. 
And we don't do this every week, but we're going to do it today. I've got a worship song, and I just want to stand up and worship God. And while we're doing this, I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? What are you speaking to me today? And if for some reason you need prayer for anything at all, come up here. Don't leave the same way you came in. Let's do business with God. Church, this is a building. But believers come together with one heart, one mind, one purpose. And that is because we love God and we want to work together. And we sh iron sharpens iron. We come together and we learn and grow together. Because we love God. Jesus.